In the 1960s, not long after the Beatles invaded America and kids everywhere picked up guitars and drumsticks and formed their own bands, enterprising individuals all over Chicago and the suburbs saw opportunity. Teens not old enough to drink or get into bars wanted places they could call their own, see local bands play, and maybe witness some up-and-coming national and even international bands perform live. This is the story of Chicago's teen rock clubs of the 60s. I'm Tommy Henry. Welcome to the Chicago History Podcast. Fair warning, if you are of a certain age, I may not get to your favorite rock club from the 60s. There were so many that I had to limit things to a few key spots. I will sprinkle in mentions of many clubs throughout this episode, so pay attention. I may just mention some sure to jar some memories. Often called one of the first and best teen rock clubs of the Chicago area, The Cellar in suburban Arlington Heights was the brainchild of Paul Sampson, a late 20-something postal worker and record shop manager living in the area with his wife and three kids. After seeing a show by local teen band Shadows of Night at a VFW hall, he talked the young musicians and their parents into letting him manage them. After sponsoring two local dances featuring Shadows of Night, Samson decided to open a place of his own in which teens could meet and local bands could play. Originally called The Blast, when it opened in 1965, Samson's Soda Pop Club was initially open only on Saturday nights at a VFW hall before moving for a short time to a country club in Mount Prospect and even an empty Jewel food store before finding a spot in the basement of the former St. Peter's School. The basement at St. Peter's had a low ceiling and the room often got hot and steamy, inspiring the name change for which the club was best known, The Cellar. Samson later was quoted as saying he wanted something similar to the Cavern Club, the Liverpool, England teen spot where the Beatles got their start. In May of 1966, Samson opened the cellar in a nondescript brick building that it shared with a tire shop near train tracks off Salem and Davis Streets in Arlington Heights. The cinder block walls were painted black with dark lighting and netting hung from the ceiling. Samson claimed it was, quote, carefully planned to look unplanned, end quote. He decided not to include chairs or tables, hypothesizing, quote, if a fight were to start, the best weapon in the world is a chair, end quote. He later let kids spray paint the walls and write their names on the walls. Admission was usually between $1 and $5. In June of 1966, Samson and village officials agreed to restrict admission to high school students from nearby school districts 211 and 214, as well as St. Viator and Sacred Heart of Mary High Schools. Students would be required to purchase an ID card for $1.25 with their picture and a signature of one of their parents, according to one article I read about a very upset teenage editor of the Arlington High School newspaper, The Cardinal, named Tom Walsh. The checking ID cards thing only lasted a few months before seller management stopped checking, which, according to Walsh, allowed, quote, the undesirables, end quote, to return. As the popularity of clubs like The Cellar grew, local newspapers capitalized on this by featuring columns geared toward teens with names like Potpourri of High School News, High School Highlights, Serendipity, and 
In the case of the Arlington Heights Daily Herald, one called Lemmy Kluya. While running the cellar, Paul Sampson continued to guide the path of Shadows of Night with lead singer Jimmy Sons. That band had a national hit in 1966 with its slightly sanitized version of the Irish band Them's song, Gloria, sung by Van Morrison, which hit number 10 on the Billboard charts. A few other local bands playing at the teen rock clubs back in the day included the Mods, the Crying Shames, the Flock, the New Colony Six, H.P. Lovecraft, the Ides of March, Baby Huey, and the Babysitters, the all-girl group The Same, the all-girl group Just Us, and even a teenager who recently moved from Michigan to suburban Palatine who played guitar in a band called the Amboy Dukes. That teen, NRA activist Ted Nugent. Stepping away from the cellar for a moment, as teen clubs started popping up around Chicago and the suburbs, a few of those clubs decided to join forces to help the Leukemia Society of Chicago with a marathon of bands held March 27, 1966, for six straight hours. Three of the bands, The Shadows of Night, The New Colony Six, and The Little Boy Blues, all local bands who had released actual records, would each make appearances at all of the clubs throughout the day, while lesser-known bands of the day would also be playing. Clubs that participated in this event included The New Place, which was just outside far northwest Algonquin, The Pink Panther in Deerfield, The Green Gorilla in Des Plaines, and Alba Gogo in Chicago's Albany Park neighborhood. I found another teen rock club leukemia benefit event in the spring of 1967. That won a beauty contest held at the Crimson Cougar in West Suburban Aurora. Terry Walton, that's T-A-R-E-Y of Bartlett, Illinois, was crowned Miss Leukemia Society of America at the event that raised $6,000. That is more than $46,000 in today's money. Back to the cellar. On Sunday, April 9th, 1967, the cellar featured three local bands, Little Boy Blues, Saturday's Children, and Shady Days. Days, not surprisingly, spelled D-A-Z-E. With proceeds from the evening... Admission was a dollar for that show, going to Clearbrook, which started off as a specialized school and still operates today in the Chicago area, offering resources for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. In addition to booking local acts from around Chicago, Paul Sampson of The Cellar was able to get national touring bands like Buffalo Springfield with Stephen Stills and Neil Young, played a show supported by local band Shady Days on May 13, 1967. For you Buffalo Springfield fans, in the month of May 1967, Buffalo Springfield played not only at The Cellar in Arlington Heights, but also Crimson Cougar in Aurora, Illinois, the Headquarters in Wheaton, Illinois, and the Cheetah in Uptown Chicago. Lots of animal themes at 60s clubs. Oh, because it is rarely a Chicago story without a fire or a bombing, spoiler alert, the Crimson Cougar burned down later that year on October 22, 1967. 
Two months after Buffalo Springfield, The Who played at The Cellar, their first show in the Chicago area ever on June 15, 1967. According to the book The Who, Concert File by Joe McMichael and Irish Jack Lyons, this gig was advertised as a special benefit show in conjunction with the Mount Prospect Junior Women's Club. For fans of The Who, the next night they started a two-night appearance at Bill Graham's Fillmore East in San Francisco, followed by the Monterey Pop Festival. I'll have a link to that book in the show notes. According to a 2001 article in the Tribune about an exhibit at the Arlington Heights Historical Museum, in April of 1968, a wealthy doctor from the North Shore hired an up-and-coming British band to play for his teenage daughter's birthday party. Those musicians were paid an extra $4,000 to perform the next night in Arlington Heights at The Cellar. After word got around on local radio stations, more than 2,000 teens crowded into the cellar to watch guitarist Eric Clapton, bassist Jack Bruce, and drummer Ginger Baker as Creams debut in the northwest suburbs. According to club owner Paul Sampson, they were expected to play 45 minutes, but ended up playing for an hour and a half. Also in April of 1968, British band The Yardbirds, featuring a pre-Led Zeppelin Jimmy Page, played at the cellar. I have some amazing pictures, courtesy of Roy Vombreck, who was there and kindly gave me permission to share his photos on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Thanks, Roy. As a parent, I can't help but wonder how places like The Cellar and other teen rock clubs were viewed back in the 60s. According to a Chicago Tribune article from April 16, 1967, Paul Sampson said, quote, Parents and community leaders have a standing invitation to visit the night spot at any time, end quote, and that five or six policemen are on duty at each dance. The police were off duty and paid by Samson. I found very few reports of anything terribly unseemly happening at that club. Another suburban club, The Dark Spot, was based in suburban Roselle, Illinois, and opened Friday, January 6, 1967. The building, situated on the site of the former Nordic Wood Products Company, was rented by Roselle residents Mel Perry and Sandy Snazik. Perry and Snazik renovated the building, adding a snack shop and dance floor. Perry said the walls and ceiling would be painted black, quote, because the kids love it, they don't like to be in a showplace, end quote. Perry also stressed the dark spot would be specifically for students of Lake Park High School and Conant High School, as well as students at St. Viator and Sacred Heart of Mary High School. IDs for admission would cost $2 per year. The sign above the door at the entrance read, No Grease, a word which apparently applied to all unsavory-looking individuals. Crowds most weekend nights were said to be between 800 and 900, and yet, when the building was sold a year and a half after the club opened, the dark spot was suddenly no more. In the Tower Ticker column by Herb Lyon in the May 2, 1966 Chicago Tribune, Lyon noted that, quote, Borden Stevenson's jumbo New York City nightclub, The Cheetah, three floors of pandemonium, 
is off to a spectacular start, and young Borden is plotting a Chicago branch on the Pronto, end quote. If you recognize the name, yes, Borden Stevenson is the son of U.N. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson, who also served as Illinois governor from 1949 to 1953. Capacity at the Cheetah was 2,000. When the Cheetah finally opened in Chicago on October 15, 1966, it was in the uptown neighborhood on Lawrence Avenue in a building most new as the Aragon Ballroom. Club managers went as far as to replace the Aragon sign with one that read Cheetah. The Cheetah was one of the few clubs that tried to draw a slightly older crowd by making its minimum age 18. Of course, as mentioned before, it is not a Chicago story without a fire or a bombing. The Cheetah Club was indeed bombed November 1st, 1966, just two weeks after opening. The blast was so powerful, it blew a four-by-four-foot hole in the concrete floor of the entranceway, blowing out steel doors and knocking down a section of wall of the club. Fortunately, no one was there and no one was hurt. Shockingly, he says sarcastically, no one at the time could think of anyone who might want to bomb the place. Management went as far as to insist the bombing was not directed at the cheetah, but at a neighboring building. In an article in the April 16, 1967 Tribune, writer Robert Baker described the cheetah as, quote, an enormous dance floor with two bandstands, flashing colored lights, a false ceiling of white canvas, and seats covered with cheetah skins. The sound is continuous, provided by two bands that alternate each hour. According to Baker, the cheetah also had two bars, one with alcohol and one without, and, quote, a shop where mod clothing and mod paintings, tempera and glitter collages of assorted cheetahs, animal and human, are sold. Admission at the cheetah was $2.50 during the week and $4 on the weekends. The cheetah in Chicago is one of four locations across the country. Others included New York City, Union Bay, New Jersey, and Cheetah LA, Santa Monica to be exact, which in a weird coincidence was on the site of an old ballroom called the Aragon. One of the local musicians that performed at Cheetah, according to Steve Krakow's April 7th, 2020 Chicago Reader column, The Secret History of Chicago Music, was none other than Chicago actor Joe Mantegna, who played bass in a band called the Apocryphals. The Apocryphals released five singles and even opened for Neil Diamond in 1968, the night after Martin Luther King was assassinated. While there were plans for cheetah locations to be built in London, Mexico City, Tokyo, and other large cities around the world, by early June 1968, after just a year and a half, the owners of the cheetah chain declared bankruptcy for the Chicago location, and management of the building returned to the owner, Emerson Whitney. In September of 1968, Whitney made an agreement with Aaron Russo, co-owner and manager of the Kinetic Playground on Clark, just north of Lawrence, to let Russo book acts on Fridays and Saturdays at the newly renamed Aragon, beginning November 1st of that year. Russo's plan was to book soul groups and R&B acts like Little Richard and Chuck Berry, who were having a resurgence, at the Aragon and keep the, quote, heavier so-called acid rock sound, end quote, at his venue, The Playground, based at Kinetic Playground. 
quick club mention. It has been said one of the bouncers at the Deep End 18 Rock Club in Park Ridge, Illinois, was moonlighting Chicago cop Dennis Farina, who eventually became an actor, often working with Chicago-born director Michael Mann. In St. Charles, Illinois, a suburb about 45 miles due west of downtown Chicago, was a former car dealership turned roller rink that was then converted into yet another area teen rock club called the Jaguar. Located at 12 North 3rd Street, this was not the biggest of the clubs, but still managed to pull in not only local talent, but touring bands of the day. On August 10th, 1968, billed as that supergroup from England on posters, The Who played in front of a teen crowd of about 300. According to a great first-hand account I found on the interwebs, Rick Giles, a teen from Dayton, Ohio, flew into town with his dad and drove out to St. Charles to see the show. Admission to the show was $4, about $29 in today's money. And Rick's dad was stopped at the door by the club owner for being, quote, too old, over 21. Rick's dad explained they had flown in from Ohio to see the show and was allowed in. He later took a bunch of photos of the band playing on a stage that appears to only be maybe a foot and a half off the main floor. I will have some of these pictures on the Chicago History Podcast Instagram and Facebook pages if you want to check them out. As it was part of their show at the time, the Who guitarist Pete Townsend broke his guitar and knocked over amps at the end. That must have been an amazing time. One week later, Iron Butterfly, riding high off their song Inagata De Vida, released two months before, played at the Jaguar. Before the end of that month, rock band Vanilla Fudge as well as Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart also played at the Jaguar. By late 1968, new owners had taken over the Jaguar with plans to revamp the club. A January 2nd, 1969 column in the Roselle Register, out of suburban Roselle, Illinois, stated that new owner Anthony Greasy hoped to keep booking bigger acts for local teens, but also appealed to students at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois about 25 miles west of there. Greasy also ran the Valley View Young Adults Club, club spelled with a K, referred to as Yak, in Frankfort, Illinois. Although that was billed as the largest teen club in the United States, I found very little about Yak while researching this episode. Deep reference for you longtime Chicagoans. While the column's author, Russ Sinkler, was at the Jaguar, WCFL DJ Ron Britton was there hosting a kazoo contest. Sidebar, back when radio disc jockeys were huge personalities, it was not uncommon to see the aforementioned Ron Britton and other DJs like Larry Lujak, Dick Biondi, Don Chapman, Jim Stagg, Jerry G. Bishop, Joel Sebastian and Tom Ruggiero at the clubs, hosting events and bringing attention to their respective radio stations. There was even a teen MC listed in an ad I found named Bob Surratt. By the early 1970s, most of the teen rock clubs had shut down, victims of changing times and liability issues. 
Some closed quietly, but for some, the end was not so quiet. Much like the Crimson Cougar in Aurora, the new place in Algonquin had burned to the ground on December 20th, 1968. The cellar had an abrupt ending. While he planned to close on Saturday, June 27th with a grand finale, Paul Sampson's club ran into trouble the night before when, according to an article in the Daily Herald, a police cadet by the name of Arthur Anderson saw one of the seller's employees drop a, quote, marijuana cigarette. The cadets summoned officers, and the 17-year-old seller employee was charged with possession of marijuana. While he was being taken away, an 18-year-old employee started shouting obscenities at police, as well as statements that were of, quote, a threatening nature. The second youth was charged with disorderly conduct and aggravated assault. The next day, the police chief was informed of the events from the night before and was told club owner Samson had accused the police of harassing him from the day he opened the club six years before and that, quote, he would get even with them all that night, end quote. Ugh. Samson denied making the threat, but the police chief preemptively shut down the club, rescinding Samson's license. Samson claimed a thousand teens showed up that night, only to be turned away. Police estimated the crowd was slightly more than 200. I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Honestly, there was so much to get to, I may have to circle back for a part two on Chicago's teen rock clubs. As always, I'd love to hear from you if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I'll be posting news articles, pictures, and ads from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. There is a lot to share. Check it out and give us a follow, please. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on these social media pages. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you would, please take a moment and like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>